This is Founder Forward, the podcast from NEA, where we explore the company building journey with candid commentary from founders and investors, some legendary, some just getting started, all moving forward. I'm Kate Barrett. On this episode of Founder Forward, I spoke to Nikeo Grieco, co-founder of 13 Loon, a direct-to-consumer e-commerce beauty site that highlights products almost exclusively from black and brown-owned companies. Nikeo shared how a cultural turning point helped her to create a mission-driven company. I'm Nikeo Grieco. I'm the co-founder of 13 Loon. 13 Loon is the first of its kind, truly inclusive beauty retail platform. And on every episode of Founder Forward, we like to fast forward to get some insights from a founder and investor who are walking this road together. Today, we'll hear from Nora Sakija, CEO and co-founder of Majuri, a direct-to-consumer fine jewelry brand that introduces handcrafted everyday jewelry without the traditional retail markup, and NEA partner Vanessa Larco. Nora and Vanessa talked about how Majuri worked to change the way people approach jewelry purchases and who the customers for those purchases are. My name is Nora Sakija and I run Majuri. And Majuri is the, I'm going to put my aspiration board here. Majuri is the number one global jewelry brand. Close. We're getting there. <laughs> I'm Vanessa Larco. I'm a partner at NEA. We fund early and late stage startups and partner with them across their journey. As you consider building your business in these changing times, join us to discover how these founders considered the landscape before them and really sought to make a difference to the customers and communities they serve. Let's dive in. Nakea, when it comes to 13 Loon's journey, there's so much to talk about, but I really want to start with the beauty piece of this. I mean, it has been a career-long focus for you, right? Yes. I mean, I I was drawn to beauty since I was a little girl. Um, I was inspired to create my first brand, Nikeo, based on family beauty secrets that were passed down to me by my Kenyan family. My grandmother was a coffee farmer, and when I met her for the first time at eight years old, she taught me how to take coffee beans um, that she grew on her farm in Kenya and crush them and add oils and use rods of sugarcane to exfoliate our skin. And my grandfather was a medicine man. And although he passed away before I got the chance to know him, many of his beauty secrets were passed down to my mom, who then, as a first-generation American, practiced those rituals on me, which included being able to use oils that were extracted from nature to treat the skin and hair and ailments. And so, you know, I'd say that my beauty journey started pretty early. Wow. So maybe not rooted in entrepreneurship with your family, but very much of a family focus. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely say, you know, my my grandmother, as I said, was a coffee farmer. My grandfather on my mother's side uh, was a farmer and a merchant as well. So while it's not the traditional, as we know here in the U.S., um, way to entrepreneurship, that's how they supported their families and what they grew They ate, they used, they sold. But, you know, I don't think I ever really sort of thought of myself as an entrepreneur in my early days. I definitely was the kid that always had the lemonade stands and the bake stands, the car washes. I got my first glitter nail polish kit when I was in elementary (laughs) school and uh, made a big mess, but still was able to, you know, hawk glitter nail polish to my friends in the neighborhood. And, you know, it wasn't until... 
I went to college, I studied business, I started my career working in the entertainment industry here in Los Angeles, and then started Nikeo, but really started Nikeo because I felt that the continent of Africa was very underrepresented, especially in premium beauty. There were so many ingredients and, and rituals from Africa sort of being borrowed by many beauty brands, but there wasn't a lot of credit given to Africa and the sophistication and the honor of where these ingredients were cultivated and these rituals started. So at the ripe old age of 27, I set out on a path to make my grandmother's coffee scrub. So that's how, that's how it all started. Nora, so tell me the journey to get to Majuri. Why did you start it? How did you start it? Let's start there. The story goes a long time ago. I'm a third generation in my family to work in jewelry, so I've had a lot of passion for the product, the way that the product is made, gemstones, diamonds, etc. But I think being an insider also gave me access to seeing things from the inside, to thinking more deeply about the industry. And so some of the things that I didn't necessarily associate with is the fact that whether it's a mom and pop shop or a big brand, fine jewelry has always been positioned as this classic piece, exclusive price point, and the marketing campaigns are targeted for men to buy for women. And that felt a little bit outdated for me. So I, I actually took a detour. I studied engineering. I worked in consulting. I didn't pursue the family business. And I, I moved to Canada and then, you know, started to make my own disposable income, wanted to buy jewelry for myself. Even asking my friends, there wasn't necessarily a brand that we felt associated with. And so that was sort of the aha moment that I wanted to create a brand starting with women buying jewelry for themselves. And we, we had hypotheses, we had goals to basically change jewelry from being a once a year type of purchase to a frequent purchase, a product that women love to buy for themselves, can't afford to buy for themselves. It's priced for them, designed for them and designed for every day, celebrating every day. And we also wanted to change the behavior from a primarily a gifting behavior to a self-purchase behavior. And now we have 70% of our customers are women buying for themselves or for their friends. And now obviously our aesthetic had expanded and we think everybody buy yourself the damn diamond. <laughs> I agree with that. Did you always envision being an entrepreneur or did you just see this problem and it, it didn't let you sleep at night? So you went after it. I think I had... A mix of both. I come from a family of all of them are entrepreneurs. So that probably in my mind made it a little bit easier to have a why not mentality and sort of break that boundary uh, towards entrepreneurship. And then this particular problem, I was very passionate about it. And it felt like I'm connecting the legacy of my family of generations and modernizing it. So I have a very emotional connection to the things that I'm doing. So Majuri is really rooted in family tradition for Nora, and that's really forged the emotional connection she brings to her work, the passion she has for it. Does that ring true for you as well, Nikeo? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, going back to the co-creation of 13 Loon with my co-founder, Patrick Herning, um, you know, that was really an answer once again in the midst of a racial reckoning and a global pandemic. I found myself as the founder of Nikeo on all of the lists, you know, top Black-owned beauty brand to shop and to follow. On these lists, sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands, I discovered brands that I'd never heard of. And I'd often been the only at shelf in my Nikeo beauty journey and thought, well, how strange that I've never heard of all of these brands. Because quite honestly, 
when it came to finding people who looked like me, who I could, you know, call my community in the industry, there were very few. And who knew I was part of this larger community? And, you know, I was also receiving a lot of support, but support in the way of being asked questions like, I don't look like you, so can I use your products on my skin? And and thinking, you know, in 2020, that we still have to debunk the myth that black and brown people only create products for black and brown people. And when beautiful initiatives like the 15% pledge and pull up for change were happening at the same time, in my mind, I thought, well, gosh, there's a thousand brands here on this list, 500 on this list. You know, why is it so difficult to get to 15% and what's behind that? And And really, there were a few things that were behind that. One, a lot of these brands I'd never heard of didn't have access to capital, and I knew the challenges. Even though Nikeo had had many stops and starts, many of my challenges happened because I would grow the business to a certain point and then would have to pull back, banging down doors to get money to keep the business going and have to shut it down and relaunch and shut it down and relaunch. So I had the life experience that I could assume that many of these brands were experiencing. And and as I started to connect with them on social media, I realized that that was the truth. Two, I felt that I wanted to create the retailer that I always wished I had and help these others to learn from my challenges. They'll make their own mistakes, but learn from my challenges um, and get to success quicker. And three, um, we were living in such divisive times and beauty is such a catalyst for connection. Beauty wins even in times of economic downturn in times of sadness. Beauty often just brings joy. And I thought, gosh, while we're all living in this really tumultuous time, both with a global pandemic and the height of systemic racism of our lifetimes, how can I answer a call and help the beauty industry find a way to come together and be a catalyst to help create generational wealth? So in in both businesses, it really came from a place of how can I better serve the collective. Nikeo, every first-time founder has to make that leap from the vision that they have to the business that they're actually going to build. And I think it would be really good to explore how do you begin that? Let's listen to Vanessa and Nora talking about the early days of Majuri when it was founded back in 2015. And so tell us a little bit, what did day one look like? Did you quit your consulting job, start with a whiteboard and stare at a wall? Did you bring in co-founders? How, how was that journey? So my partner, who's my life partner and my business partner, we started the business together and we both used to work on it at night consistently. And there came a point where it was like, we either go all in or it's not going to come to fruition. And so at that point, I decided to leave my job. So I left my job uh, in 2014, I believe, and then joined um, a business accelerator in, in Montreal. It was a very early stage uh, business accelerator. And that's when we brought in a couple of uh, sort of interns and we brought in our uh, CTO and then we brought in also our chief creative officer. So she's been there from the beginning. I knew that I wanted to build something very big. And then uh, we started there in order to get ourselves into a position to fundraise and start to accelerate growth. I met you through 500 startups in the very early days, but there were, like you mentioned, there were so many D to C companies propping up. Some of them were jewelry, some of them were other categories. It was really hard to make sense of all the noise. But for me, it all became clear when I went home to Miami and my childhood best friends were talking about a jewelry brand. 
and they were talking about Majuri, and two of them were wearing Majuri. And I was like, "What? What? How did you guys find out about Majuri? They're they're in Toronto." <laughs> and um, you know, ever since then, it was just very clear to me that this movement was hitting all parts of the country. Right? It wasn't just the techies in San Francisco or the very you know cutting edge fashionistas in New York. It was all the way in Miami. So grateful for your friends. I have to. I have to send them thank you notes. <laughs> <laughs> The most exciting moment for me is I went grocery shopping very early on and then I saw someone I don't know wearing Majuri and that also is a sign and and getting a lot of good customer feedback. And so the most important feedback that I believe I got in the early stages is a customer who wrote back to us and said, I never used to buy myself fine jewelry until you existed. So that was a big moment for me to understand that customers are actually changing their their relationship with fine jewelry because of our message, because of our design, because our of our frequency, because of our price point. And that was a big moment that felt to me we're onto something, a movement more than just a jewelry company. What does 13 Learns Mission mean to you personally in that way? And have you had any moments like that where you're like, wow, this mm-hmm. is a potentially really big deal? Whether it's as a woman, as a as a founder, as a person of color, how do you think about all that? I mean, it's truly amazing. I mean, I think I, I mentioned earlier that some of my biggest challenges in my first business were really tied to lack of access to capital. And, and beyond lack of access to capital, it was lack of access to even getting in the room. And so I'd say my first aha moment when we announced that within our angel group, friends and family, investors that we had relationships with, but you know, not even VCs at this point, just people who who love to invest, mentors of mine, and explained, you know, we wanted to start this platform. We believe the business will be omni-channel, but we want to start online and we want to launch with 13 black-owned brands and we want to speak to allyship and the trajectory of raising capital in those first couple of weeks before we launched the site was the fastest I've ever raised money and the most yeses I've ever gotten in my, at that point, 18-year, 20, almost 19-year career. So that was my first aha moment. Outside of just the capital, it was also all of the brands that said yes. You know, the 13 Black-owned brands and our first ally brand, which was Goop. And Gwyneth was one of our first investors, along with P. Diddy and Greg Renfrew from Beauty Counter. So this community of entrepreneurs and tastemakers that really got on board. But then once we launched and, you know, we're sort of out there for the first time with this message in such a big way, it was so validating that from the jump, (laughs) there were so many people of all different races that got really excited about 13 Loon and immediately started to shop. And and then 90 days after we launched is when we got the call from JCPenney asking us to become their new in-store retail partner in their beauty space. And so it was a lot of, holy cow, this really works. That must have been incredible. Yeah. Well, it was so incredible, A, because it was still 2020. It was a business born out of Zoom with a very remote, small team. And it was hard work, but the reception was so easily attained that I knew that we were on to really speaking to people, not only from a heartstring perspective, but from a need and people wanting to answer the call to be true catalysts for change. 
So it's amazing to find unexpected and sudden success, yet at the same time, that almost inevitably comes with pressure to grow and to change and to scale. Nor and Vanessa discuss navigating those challenges with Majuri, especially around building out the team. I think, you know, the thing that keeps resonating with me is learning culture. You have a learning culture. You said from day one, you said business is growing rapidly. You yourself have to grow rapidly with the business. And, you know, there's this expectation of learning from every individual, but it also sounds like expectations of learning from every organism, like every team, right? And setting up those feedback loops so that they can learn what resonates with customers and what doesn't. Everything is changing all the time. Like most recently, even with iOS changes, you were you know, very happy with your marketing mix. And all of a sudden it's completely changed and you have to learn. And nobody has done that before. It's not like you can, you can talk to somebody and figure it out. It's more of everybody's in the same position trying to figure things out. And so I think it becomes very important to create that learning uh, environment where the success, we can build on the successes of whatever experiments we're running. And it's one of the challenges now with a hybrid work environment not to say that it, you only have to be at the office to learn, but it makes it easier. And now we have to intentionally create infrastructures and opportunities for that to occur uh, while we're remote. One of the things I find to be exceptional about Majuri, and I truly mean this in the way that exceptional is meant to be said, it, it, I rarely see anything like this. You hire extremely well. It's common for people to be at Majuri for years, and especially the early hires, or a lot of them are still with the company. So what are some of the hiring philosophies or tips and tricks, or how do you think about hiring in, in such a way that you've produced results that are very different than the industry? To answer this, I think one of the core things I would say, if I take a step back, is we know exactly what our culture and values are, even from the beginning. And then we, we are very clear about vetting for these values as we do the, the hiring process. And we also are very clear about the fact that if you are to continue with the business, you have to continue to acquire knowledge on your own. And also we're going to help you through the business. We have internal coaching now. We have an L&D department, obviously. And so, but we also do speak very openly about the fact that you have to invest in yourself and continue to acquire knowledge because if a business grows, you know, 100%, 70%, it's a completely different business from year one to year two. And everybody, including myself, has to continue to step up, right? So I think it's a mix of things. And most recently, we've, we've done interview training. We've put some processes in place. But I would say overall, I think it's clarity on what really matters to you from a value standpoint and really being very, very diligent about vetting these values and these behaviors. Yeah. Are there any tips on how to vet for these values and behaviors? Did, did you start off by like writing out the values and behaviors on day one or, or did this kind of evolve? Uh, in the past couple of years, we wanted to scale the process. And obviously interviewing process has to be, uh, you know, you have to approach it with a high degree of equity. And so data is absolutely important, documenting everything, but also having the right questions on each value and providing this information to all of your team. So we ask the same types of questions for each value and continue to probe. That adds a level of consistency across because when you want to scale, obviously in the beginning, Majid and I and a few people would do the interviews and it's easy. But right now you have to provide a bank of questions. You have to be very clear about the, the values that you're vetting for and you have to ask for documentation so that everybody is, is steering the ship in the right direction. 
That makes sense. It feels a lot harder to execute in real life. You make it sound so simple. <laughs> Nikeo, I'd love to know how you think about hiring at 13 Loon and sort of the role that the mission or the culture plays in the way you build the team and in the way you're growing the business. Absolutely. I mean, we've had such a trajectory of growth in 22 months, you know, starting with we'll be a platform and one day we'll be omni-channel to now rolling out 600 stores within JCPenney by March of, of 2023. So, you know, we started as a very small and mighty, very consultant-heavy team to then quickly moving into key hires. And, you know, I can use the example of how we define an ally brand, brands that we invite to be a part of the platform in our stores is we define an ally brand as a brand that long before 2020 was focused on serving all in their formulations, in their innovation, in front of the camera, behind the camera. If they have a C-suite in their C-suite or in their hiring process, you know, we really vet that these companies are, are far from performative. And so when we think about building our team at 13 Loon, we put our money where our mouth is, you know, I'm a, I'm a, it's a black co-founded business. My partner is a white gay male. And when we look at hiring and building our team, you know, obviously we look for talent, but within that talent pool, we do a really deep dive into making sure that from a mission standpoint, that we are not only hiring diversely, not even just according to race, you know, gender identification, disabilities, et cetera. It's very important to us that we are helping to lessen the wage gap, especially when it comes to some of our female identifying employees. And then really leaning into proper representation in the same way that we look at our assortment and it's always going to be 90-10, but you know, where are we with Hispanic and Latinx and, you know, Black, African-owned, Black, American-owned, et cetera, East Asian, South Asian brands, we really try to practice that in our hiring as well. I will say that most everybody that we have interviewed knows exactly what our mission is, so that makes it a little easier because we've had the ability to storytell a lot over the 22 months, and so it's about the mission first. And we're a startup, and so, you know, Understanding that as a startup, you're going to have to wear many hats and that you're on board to do the hard work, but know that you're doing it because you're bettering the lives not only of yourself, but of others as well. That's a beautiful way to look at your work as a founder. And having those mission-driven goals is so important. It's also really important to know how you're doing against those goals. Let's take a listen to what Vanessa and Nora had to say about measurement, which is a huge focus for Majuri. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, I think, Nora, the other thing that I've been really blown away by is how you and your team measure the right things. It almost makes me a little sad because I feel like my value add when I come to company is to help people discover the right things to measure. And we go through this journey, and then at the end of it, we're measuring the right things. And everyone's like, oh, you helped me so much. I'm like, yes, you're welcome. And I feel needed and loved. But when I came to Majuri, and you were already measuring all the right things. How did you land there? How And you continue, like all your teams continue to, the things they measure are the right things and give you, they're leading indicators, not not lagging indicators. And it's really impressive. Oh, thank you. That's that's great to hear. 
I don't know. I call us data junkies from the beginning. We we love data and diamonds. <laughs> data and diamonds should be the slogan. Yeah, I think, honestly, I, I go back always to that experience where we had very limited capital in the beginning. We We had like this burning desire to make this company work. And that forced us to be sharper, I think, in a way where you can influence only a limited number of things with what you have and they better be the right things. But I think being cognizant, so this is one thing that I'm particularly proud of, is I define the next generation brands as those who not only introduce nice, well-designed, high-quality products at an affordable price, it's all of the other infrastructure that goes behind it in terms of fast supply chain, making the right decisions for the customers, creating the right experience, whether it be it from technology to fulfillment, et cetera. You know, we were cognizant from the beginning about that sort of infrastructural piece. And we didn't start the business just on the product side. We actually started off also with technology and with supply chain from day one. And I think that forces you, A, to bring in very analytical people and B, uh, recognize the importance of, you know, when you have limited resources, I need to really figure out the right decision-making process and where do I put my dollars, et cetera. And so I think it started off from the idea that we really wanted to build a very scalable infrastructure so that this business can operate at high speed to market, can bring products at a high frequency. We pioneered the drop model because of the um, uh, supply chain. So I think it goes to the roots. And now we have an entire data team that is uh, sort of sets the infrastructure and data enables decision making driven by data. So it's something we valued from the very beginning. And once you recognize that that's something that you value, I think you start to hire people who think like that. Now we're at a point where everybody faces it. We measure way too many things. So we are trying to scale back and say, you know, let's measure the, the core, core things that matter to us. And because it, it gets very tempting to measure everything when you're data oriented. Nikeo, I'm sure this is something you've experienced building a D2C business. The tools are always changing. The way you do analytics is changing. Customer behaviors and expectations are changing. How do you keep up with that? Not just from the standpoint of the business, but like as a founder. Yes. It's not for the faint of heart. When I started <laughs> Nikeo, my first business almost 21 years ago, there was no social media. You didn't pay talent to say they liked your product. You didn't have to set up you know, shoots of them holding product. I mean, it was such a different world. I mean, my my original marketing of Nikeo was going to former clients that I worked with and dropping off Tupperwares of coffee scrub and doing my own data analysis and how they liked it and it worked. And then they authentically would talk about it and not only support of me, but because they love the product so much. And it was a lot of door-to-door to retailers, et cetera, et cetera. So it was very different. And then, of course, I had to go through all the iterations of growth and technology through that business and luckily was able to have some teams around me towards the end. But with 13 Loon, you know, I'd say the benefit is, is that we launched post iOS update. So when I would speak to my other friends with D2C businesses that were panicked because of the iOS update, we were able to just sort of take a step back and not even turn on paid for the first year of our business and not spend those dollars trying to figure out algorithms and really went to organic growth first and foremost. That was really good timing. 
<laughs> yeah, I would say that was like a benefit and also a curse because then, you know, brand awareness is a little hard when you're not doing ads, but, but you know, really just word of mouth, old school press, all of that. And I think we were also lucky that a lot of people were just home and still, so there wasn't a lot to do, but, you know, read the trades and follow maybe magazine.coms that you hadn't been able to catch up on in a while and things like that. And right. And everybody was always on a screen, so any chance that we got to be a part of an integrated marketing story or something like that, we would take advantage of those opportunities. And then, you know, even with streaming, we also started to see the effect of, you know, every time I would go on television, whether it be a morning show or Nightline and just tell the story that we would see, you know, sales climb, even if I wasn't speaking specifically about any product because it was a a testament to what we thought when we launched the business and and what was proven to be true is that people were genuinely shopping with their heartstrings and and shopping for good. So once we turned on paid, it is a little bit of throwing spaghetti to the wall to see what sticks, but it really is having a holistic, whether it be paid media, integrated marketing, gifting, influencer, you know, you really have to to balance it all. I don't think anyone works totally, especially with D2C. And I'm not afraid of traditional media. My kids sing commercial jingles all the time, even though they don't watch traditional television all the time. I mean, I think that it really has to be a holistic 360 um, marketing plan to find your consumer. Now, Keo, you've built several businesses over the course of your career. So for all of those bright, shining moments that are amazing, you know, we know that there are some really tough times too that come with company building. And they're just as much a part of the founder journey as the victories. I want to play an excerpt from Vanessa and Nora's discussion, you know, talking about the way that Nora has really responded to some of those obstacles she's faced building Majuri. So Nora, you know, I think folks can look at the Majuri story and say, well, it looks like it was always up and to the right Things look smooth, right? The fundraises came and, and the business grew healthily across all the years, but there have been some tough times. And I'd, you know, maybe we can talk through and, and be helpful for some entrepreneurs to hear what are some tough times and what helps you get through some of the difficult times in the business. When challenging times happen, um, and maybe we, you know, dramatically call them war time, war time CEOs and peacetime CEOs. I don't know if you've heard about that, but essentially, getting really, really descriptive and really accurate about the uh, challenges that we're facing and creating a shared reality with the executive team and subsequently with the business. I think that is step number one, is here are the things that we're facing. We're not going to sugarcoat this. This is happening. That creates a sense of urgency and a sense of reality. It also should create a sense of prioritization for us to focus on the problems. So I think that is the first thing. And then where I also gravitate is having a momentum towards uh, these particular issues. And so talking about them frequently until they get to steady state. And you get to become, as a CEO in these times, more directive than other times. We paid a lot of attention to our culture and our team in the past couple of years. Uh, We've uh, created internal coaching. We created L&D. We created a a lot of wellness services also for the team. Because that brings me to point number two is taking care of your people, even in, you know, the tough times, never compromising their well-being because they are the ones at the end of the day who will solve problems, make things happen. And so that never should uh, be removed from the conversation. 
And like you said, because we're data-driven, we keep our eyes on as many KPIs as that makes sense. And then we're able to steer the ship in the right direction. I don't want to oversimplify it. I mean, it's a lot more complex to implement, but I think these are my three steps is to sort of overcome short-term challenges. And obviously you start to build the business for longer term. So you start to take into consideration all of these challenges and how would you then design for them more longer term and how would you design to overcome these sorts of challenges in the longer term. But I find transparency and honesty is the first step that you have to establish. A lot of CEOs, I think, we fall into this maybe narrative of wanting to make everybody feel like everything is good and dandy. And I think that doesn't get you to the right places because you need a shared reality and shared responsibility from those around you to solve problems. And I think that's that's sort of a mental switch from being the optimistic person. You have to continue to be optimistic, but it's not like you have to cover the truth. It's bringing the right level of information to people so that we can solve it. Nikayo, is there any particular advice or are there any lessons learned that we haven't talked about that mm. you would really want to share with other founders or that you wish somebody had told you? Gosh, so much. But um, I mean, I kind of danced around it a bit, but just don't take dumb money, you know, like, and I define dumb money as giving up too much of yourself, your business, your integrity, just to get a check. I'd say, you know, one of the best pieces of advice that I got probably a little too late in my life was, you know, vet your investors. As I said earlier, it's an invitation. And so, yes, it's, it can be so exciting, especially if you're in the 0.0002% category or 0.006 as, as women who can get venture capital. It's really easy to get swept up in the potential yes without doing a really deep dive into what does this mean for my potential equity, for my business, for my voice. I also define dumb money when I take responsibility for for my own actions is not listening to my gut. The gut is the most powerful muscle that we have in our body. And and often it, it really does come up as physicality. It comes up as butterflies or anxiousness. Or, and when you don't listen to it, you pay for that. And so you know, there are so many people in the world with money. There are so many good investors, strategic investors, investors that not only write the check, but truly, truly are there for you in the times of, of epic growth, but especially there for you when when you're going through transition and hard times. And, and so seek out those investors, vet those investors, trust your gut, and don't take dumb money. That's great advice for any founder. You know, Vanessa and Nora talked about how critical it is to find those strong connections, to have those shared experiences, and be able to build trusting relationships over time. The interesting thing, Nora, I don't know if you realize this, but you were, I think, the first CEO since I'd been at NEA, so um, before the pandemic, to, to pitch the partnership fully remote. And I remember folks asking, like, well, can't we fly her in? Like, we have to meet her. And I'm like, well, she's 33 weeks pregnant or 34 <laughs> weeks pregnant with twins. Like, it's getting really close. Probably yeah. not a good idea. We're going to have to do this remote. I remember that. And I re- remember the room. Um, it's actually one of the things that I was really impressed with. And it made me feel even more excited to partner with you. 
first of all, you as a woman, a VC who has uh, kids and is building a family and recognizes that you can do both. Like that's, that's table stakes. Cause I have been asked before when I was fundraising uh, before kids, if I was going to have kids and obviously that was a red flag and other funds to say, you know, not to pursue the conversation. And so knowing that, first of all, the person I'm talking to has the same lifestyle and really truly believes that you can do everything. And then being able to, before the pandemic, before pitching uh, over Zoom to actually give me that opportunity and to go ahead with the deal was a big, big positive for me. And it really made me feel like I'm partnering with the right partner because you want to partner with um, VCs for the long term, it's a really important relationship. It's not just about the money, it's about the knowledge and the connections, but it's also about the support. They see you as a human being, a fully functioning human being and not just a CEO. And that was really, really important for me. It's been amazing. It's been amazing getting to, to work alongside of you and learn and grow with you. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Okay, thank you so much for joining me today. I've enjoyed our conversation and just some really incredible takeaways and great advice for founders and it's clear that you have had a a long and somewhat you know blessed journey here as far as being able to identify needs and build a great business build several great businesses best of luck to you and and thanks for sharing some of those experiences thank you thank you for having me i so enjoyed our time today always inspiring to hear a founder share their journey. It's inspiring and instructive to hear how a founder has lifted up underrepresented communities and given their customer base a new perspective on an industry or product. And I think getting to that level of detail about the company building journey really offers a lot to any founder that they can take away and apply in their own journey. I'd like to thank Nikeo, Nora, and Vanessa for sharing their incredible stories with us. It's been a pleasure to hear about their journeys and learn from their experiences. I hope you learned a lot too. Founder Forward is a production from NEA made in partnership with Frequency Media. From NEA, I'm your host and executive producer, Kate Barrett, with support from Ashley Mitchell, Erica Sunkin, and Shanna Hendricks. From Frequency Media, Michelle Corey is our executive producer, Ina Garkusha is our supervising producer, Jordan Rizzieri is our producer, and Catherine Devine and Emily Krumberger are our associate producers. Our mixer and sound designer is Claire Bidigari-Curtis, with dialogue editing by Sydney Evans. For more on NEA, visit NEA.com. You can subscribe to Founder Forward on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 